I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Marie Benedict is a lawyer with more than 10 years' experience as a litigator at two of the country's premier law firms, but she found her calling unearthing the hidden historical stories of women. Her mission is to excavate from the past the most important, complex, and fascinating women of history and bring them into the light of present day, where we can finally perceive the breadth of their contributions, as well as the insights they bring to modern-day issues. She has been featured in, among other publications, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and her books include the New York Times bestsellers, The Only Woman in the Room, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie, and The Personal Librarian, as well as The Other Einstein, Carnegie's Maid, and Lady Clementine. I had a great time talking to Marie, and I hope you enjoy listening. Here she is. Hello, Marie. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to talk all things books, all things libraries with a librarian. It's just, I mean, the the delight is all mine. Oh, all libraries all the time. I love it. That could be my new tagline. It seems like a radio jingle, right? (laughs) (laughs) It works for me. I love it. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I am... I have read many of your books. I'm a fan of your writing. I am excited to talk mostly about The Personal Librarian today, but also I loved the beginnings. I'm not finished with it yet, but I am about a quarter of the way through Her Hidden Genius, and I'm really enjoying it. So we'll talk about that too. But my favorite thing, when I was kind of researching and going through and thinking about the things I wanted to ask you. I find it so fascinating that one of your early books was titled The Only Woman in the Room, mm-hmm. and you write about only women in a variety of rooms. Yes. Is that, and I that? Was that intentional? I mean, how did you kind of land on, I guess, that being your, your thing? Mm-hmm. Not oh, that I want to pigeonhole you, but... Yeah. You don't, yeah, I, I would be happy to be professional. <laughs> okay. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I have a very specific mission, which is not always true for historical fiction writers, you know? Yes. Sometimes, like, I will go wherever the historic woman wants me to go, whatever time period, whatever country, whatever room, as she said, whatever yes. field she happens to be in. You know, my mission is pretty consistent across all books, and that is to excavate the really most crucial women of history who've left us important legacies, but we usually don't know who they are. And I'm also kind of looking for women who are dealing with dealing with issues that have modern day resonance. So Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, uh, struggles of a woman in STEM, career, life, work balance, 
the, when I see those things in these women, I'm really drawn to them. So it's a little bit different than other historical fiction in the sense that it's, it's definitely fiction. You know, it's inspired by a real woman and anchored in her very real life. But yeah, that is my very specific mission. And because they've left legacies, which was not what women were supposed to do way back when, right? They were supposed to stay at home, work at their house, take care of their children, which is all important. But because they are women who've left legacies, they're often the only woman in the room, as you said. Yes. Um, They're often the only woman in politics, in the arts, in science, um, in a variety of fields. Yeah. I think you do such a good job of writing the time and the characters as well. They're, They're very balanced. I really get a sense of not only the woman, but where she fits into the larger context. And you really, it's, it's really well done. And it always feels very full. I can picture it. Your writing is very descriptive. And I, I'm a fan of the way you write historical fiction because some historical fiction can be harder to digest, but yours is always really well done. So that is such a compliment because I've, I work very hard at that. You know, I, 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 like to anchor the women in the sort of macro and micro aspects of their historical realm, right? The the micro stuff really helps her come to life. What yes. is she wearing? What is she? I love to know what people are eating in different time periods. Yes. I love to know what their houses look like. But there's always these these macro kind of influences coming in and out, whether they're political or social or cultural, that are influencing the woman to become this usually magnificent person. Mm -hmm. And I like to record those as well. Not hopefully that it's like a recitation of a, of a period in time, but just sort of those threads that, that influence just like it's in all of our lives. Things can be happening in different parts of the world and have no impact on us where they could have huge impact on us. Yes. Who we are and what those things are. Yes. You do a really excellent job of, of doing exactly what you're setting out to do. So well done. And I also love in the personal librarian, one of the lines that stood out to me was when she was speaking to her father and he was talking about people reaching back through history to see her legacy and the way that that was working. And that is what you do. Mm-hmm. I think you are pulling things forward. And I love seeing it, especially because I have to confess your books have a tiny bit of melancholy for me because when I'm reading them, I'm thinking, I know this is not going to end as I would like it to. And well, usually yes. And because I'm actually like a very upbeat, optimistic person. And yet I, my stories usually, not always, yes, usually have a little bit of a thread that the woman has gone through something, even if she, she ends on a high note. Yes. There's some hurdle, some piece of her life that is tumultuous and difficult. But again, that's the function of who these women are. I mean, across the board, they're women who are want to be and do something which is outside the normal expectations for a woman at that time. And so she's going to come up against some challenging things along the way. Again, for some of the women, it ends better than others. Some of the women, we don't really get to see their magnificence until later when the legacies kind of impact our worlds. But I do try to make it up. (laughs) (laughs) It is. 
<laughs> well, and I felt badly even saying it because I did oh, think no. that. But when I started Her Hidden Genius, you know, I'm a quarter of the way through and I thought, mm-hmm. I really want this to go a certain way and I know it's not going to. But that's also such a cautionary tale and mm-hmm. a way of looking at not only how the world has changed for women, but also how it hasn't. And so these kind of pieces of how we incorporate all that. So I, I think it's just always instructive and yeah, I enjoy, I I enjoy your melancholy books. Thank you. Thank you for the melancholy. (laughs) I will say this about her hidden genius and what what you're talking about. Um, And you know, for people who have or haven't read it, it's story of Rosalind Franklin, who is this brilliant British scientist who really discovered the double helix structure of DNA at a time period when scientists didn't really know what that was or what it did or didn't, it really unlocked genetics. But she had her research taken by one of her colleagues and it was used by people we all know, James Watson and Francis Crick, who built a model based on her research and won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the double helix. Of course. I will say this, you know, that that obviously is is the sort of cornerstone of the story. Most people know that that's what happened, but, and this kind of goes to not everything is maybe down a little bit up. There's a, obviously a very sad note at the very end of, of the book, sure. but she leaves that time period behind and she enters, I know you're not there in the story. She enters this time period in the years after she leaves King's College where she discovered DNA, where she researches RNA and viruses in this wonderfully collaborative environment. And I really wanted to focus on that because I think people have this sort of one-dimensional image of or thought of who she is. Yes. And yet she was able to rise above all that and do groundbreaking work in another field. And what's amazing about that is that during COVID, which is when I read the, wrote the book, her legacy was like expanding before my eyes. The research she did on RNA and viruses is instrumental to our understanding of COVID and the creation of the vaccines. Mm -hmm. So it was just this unbelievable moment that I've never had happen before when I could see her contributions take on another life right before my eyes. So there is a a sort of an upbeat note there. (laughs) Yes, yes. And no, of course, but I'm really appreciating that you pointed that out because what it speaks to is we all want to be recognized for our contributions, of course, but the recognition is not what gives us value and not where things land. So to know that her life, her discoveries still impacting us, and it's wonderful that we can give that recognition and see more of that more fully now, but it's a it really is a testament also to the way that these women not only persevered, but just put their heads down and got it done. So without need for that sort of validation, right? It's, they were so passionate and driven and that part is forever inspiring. Oh, I love that you said that because I feel like that that's true of all my women. Very rarely do they get any kind of recognition. Right. But it's it's especially plays out in Rosalind's world because she, the men who took her information and you know, Watson, Crick, and Wilson, or they actually did that because they wanted the the lifetime recognition. They wanted the golden ring, they wanted the Nobel Prize. She was in it for the science. 
She was in it for the right reasons. She was in it for what she could do to humanity, the secrets she could unlock, the ways she could help people's lives. They were, I wouldn't say exclusively in it for the Nobel Prize, but certainly in that moment, yes, um, when they did what they did, they did it for the recognition. And so that is a huge part of who all these women are, is that they're driven to do the right thing because they know they're probably not going to get recognition for it during their lifetime. Yes. And that is beautiful. Yes, it is really a, a good reminder, especially we live in such a feedback-oriented time of the world, right? Yeah. And so to see these are women who didn't have any of that, and yet we're doing things for precisely the right reasons. Right. I think you're exactly right. We've lost track of that in our immediate gratification society. Yes. Right. And yet everything that we do reverberates into the future or from the past into the present. And we need to think about that more than than that, how many hits we got or how yes. many lives we got, which is where our mindset has kind of devolved to. Yes. Oh, so true. I have a question for you about how you became a writer. You were a lawyer, a litigator, correct? Right. For a number of years. And I, what stood out to me, I was reading in your bio and there was a line there about how you were unhappy in that Mm -hmm. time. What motivated the change? Because to me that stood out just because I wasn't sure, was it the way that work happens with litigation or was it that you felt you weren't where you were meant to be? Like what, what caused that and motivated the change and then how you got into writing? Yeah. It's, I'm like, how long do you have to go through my journey? I love it. Let's get in deep. That's what I want. Yes. In the deep end of the pool, everyone. Let's go. That's where (laughs) I always want people to be. It doesn't always happen. But I, you know, I think my unhappiness during those years stemmed initially I thought it was maybe it was where I was working I was working at huge law firms and and I bounced around another big law firm and in-house and never really quelled that sense that that I wasn't doing what I was meant to be doing Hmm. but I really did know truly from the start that the passion that I had had for history legend lore untold stories which is something that really started in my middle school years with a particular book as a librarian, I'm sure, you know, you know, the power of that, that one book, yes. that this one book, Miss of Avalon kind of set me on this path throughout high school and college. And I thought I was going to be like a history professor or something. And I got swept up in this wave of encouragement, societal encouragement, that if you were a history major, law was a great thing. And also it was one of the first times that women were really being encouraged in great numbers to go to law school and enter the legal profession. And so I sort of felt like, I should be fortunate to have that opportunity. And I got on board that train along with a lot of my friends. And until I started working, did I really realize that it wasn't right. Law school is very different than practicing law. In law school, you do the things that I like now. You research, you write, you construct narratives on behalf of a client. That's kind of what I do now. It's just historical research on behalf of a woman who was right. client, I advocate for her. But I knew it wasn't right. I wasn't, I was just a voracious reader kid, right? I, I think I always felt like, how could I even dare to do that? Right. That's hmm. such that's up here. I'm I'm down here. And so I would kind of sneak off during my work days and which were very long and go to the cultural institutions in New York. And I would go, I would take classes at NYU and Columbia, thinking maybe I would go back and get a, a PhD and become a his, history professor. 
And then one day I just had an idea for a story and that had never happened to me before. I wasn't setting out to write a book and I just kind of pecked away at that story over Mm -hmm. a series of years until I wrote my first book. And that's sort of, it wasn't an intentional plan at the beginning. It was sort of part and parcel of this journey to try and find a fit between my interests and skills and, and really what my, my passion was, but it did take a long time. That was like over a decade. So, so it took a while, but I got there eventually. And I sort of leapt off that train onto a path that was more authentic for me. That is, I really appreciate that in describing that though, that you are saying that it took a number of years, because I think we have a perception sometimes that it's right in my mind. Even when I was reading that bio, I'm thinking, oh, she quit her job and wrote a book and that all happened like that. But it rarely does. Never does, actually. And the path I mean, is so never. Sure, sure. Very, very, you hear those stories, but yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I wrote my first book under, uh, for an eight-year period, right? And even before I left and, and decided to pursue writing as a career, I had done everything I could to make it the best book I could. I learned about the business. I got a a literary agent. You know, I did all of those things that were necessary steps. I knew it was a a wildly mercurial career path. And so it was (laughs) definitely a risk, but I created as much of a safety net for myself as I could Mm -hmm. before I took that leap. And I'm so thankful I, I did do all that. And I'm thankful that so grateful I get to do this for my work. But yeah, you're right. It's not an overnight anything. And even getting to where I am now was an overnight, you know, that's been many, many years. Of course. Well, because you've been writing, this is your what? Her Hidden Genius. How many books have you written before it? Seven. Well, 14. 14? I was yeah. way off. <laughs> no, I published seven books as Heather Terrell. Okay. And- this is my seventh book, as Marie Benedict. So I think that's right. Maybe 15, but yeah, it's around there. Yeah, it's, wow. it's been, and I've been, I've done about a book a year ever since. So it's been 14, 15 years. That's pretty impressive. A book a year is, I mean, for those who don't know, that is, that's a pace to keep right there. <laughs> yeah. And especially for your books, mm-hmm. which require research and attention and some, level of veracity as opposed to just making it up, right? I I feel like just making it up is harder. From my perspective, I can't imagine just sitting down before that screen and just going. Like, I I feel like I have all this infrastructure with history and women, and I I couldn't, yes, that the history part, the research part of it does take time. Take time. Yes, 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 of course. And I'm sure fiction writers who are creating their own worlds, they are still researching as well. Absolutely. But I I feel like like what you do, Julie, like I couldn't do that. Like that would take me a lot longer than a year for sure. It's, it is funny how I think it just is what you end up doing first, right? Mm -hmm. Because to me, the idea of writing a fiction book, it actually though gives me sort of a weird sense of power because I started writing a little bit and then I had to set it aside and maybe I'll go back to it. But when I first started writing the few chapters of this fiction, I thought I can make them do anything. I was Mm -hmm. sort of just mad with power basically so maybe maybe I'll be a uh, sort of a mad scientist fiction writer in my next iteration never know I mean <laughs> you're a writer you can write whatever tickles your fancy. that's so true I wanted to talk a little bit about personal librarian would okay. you give a brief just a brief description for everybody about what it's about 
So The Personal Librarian is the story of Belle DaCosta Green, a remarkable woman in so many ways. She was the personal librarian to J.P. Morgan, the famous financier and industrialist, late 1800s, early 1900s. He, in his later years, became a collector of many things, including rare and priceless manuscripts. And he built a private library, his own library, next door to his house in New York City. He hired a woman, Belle DaCosta Green, to be his personal librarian just to organize, curate his collection. And in doing so, she became one of the most powerful people in the art world during what ended up being over four decades of her running the Morgan Library, which eventually became a public institution. But the only way she was able to hold that job and have the success that she did was by hiding her true identity. She was actually a Black woman passing as white And we are talking about the era of segregation. Um, She would have not even been allowed in the library that she ran during the time period that, during most of the time period that she ran it. And what's even more remarkable, I think, about her, as if that's not enough, but it's that her own family was incredible. I mean, her father was the first Black graduate of Harvard. Her mother came from this sort of illustrious, multi-generational Free families of color in Washington, D.C. They were very well educated and affluent, which was rare for the time. So she came from this rich cultural background that she had to hide and pretend to be other than in order to, to thrive in the world that she lived. I really enjoyed reading about her. And I was fascinated by her gosh, just the tension that she had to hold in her everyday life. And like you're saying, she was personally responsible for developing the collection that she would not have been able to visit, right? Right. Which is, it just is one of those things that defies imagination and should should, but then to know that it was actually happening. I think right. every time I would set the book down, I would just think, oh my gosh, right? Like, right. I, I'm i annoyed at the price of gas and this is what she was dealing with. I mean, it's just... You no, know, and, and I think, you know, I co-wrote this book with my wonderful co-writer, Victoria Christopher Murray. And that was something that we really talked about a lot is what would it have been like to, yes. to walk that tightrope every single day and to think what when's going to be the moment that this this ruse is discovered and what's going to happen as a result you know what is jp morgan going to do if he finds out his his personal librarian which was unusual enough that he had a woman in that mm-hmm. world, she was the only one that this woman was actually black and you know he was a difficult man he could be very mercurial and he did not, he was not afraid of exacting retribution on people. Right. So that could happen to her. And not to mention her whole, not only her job and her identity, but her entire family's identity, her four brothers and sisters, her mother, they, all, all of their lifestyles as white people, you know, they lived and worked in jobs that were for white people. They married white people. They lived as white people in um, a segregated society. That whole system would come crumbling down if she was outed. So it was just the stress of that alone, not to mention being like J.P. Morgan's right-hand person was something we talked about all the time, what that would have been like. I really 
appreciated your author's note because when I first picked up the book, I thought, oh, a co-author, that's a great idea. I need to get me one of those. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. <laughs> but then I got to the end of the book because I was kind of wondering how that all came about. And your author's note and Victoria's as well were mm-hmm. so just, they provided a lot of illumination mm-hmm. as to the way that that came about. And I thought that was so wise for mm-hmm. you to know the stories that you can and should tell. And then the stories that you are not fully capable of telling. Right. Because of your skin color. That's right. Yeah. I really felt like, let me back up one second. When I I discovered Belle Costa Green, which she didn't really need to be discovered, right? She was always out there. But when I first heard of her was actually at the Morgan library a long time ago when I was still practicing law and it wasn't until, and you know, I thought she was incredible. She, yeah. I keep this list of women I'm curious about, and she was, she's been on it forever. But her identity as a black woman didn't come out for a couple decades after that. It was really the um, end of the 1990s, early 2000s that 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 discovery was really that suspicion was confirmed. Let's okay, put it okay. And as I learned more and more about her, that's sort of when. I said, you know, I can't tackle this story on my own. You know, as a, a fiction writer, I can imagine a lot of things. You know, I said earlier, I I go wherever my women go. I go yes. whatever. I, I write as a scientist. I'm definitely not a scientist, but I do know my limitations. And I, and I do know what for me is appropriate and what's not appropriate. And I cannot imagine what it's like then or now to be a black woman in this country. Right. And I also felt like for having to be forced to live in the shadows of history for so long, Belle Costa Green deserved to have a black woman tell her story too. You know, if we were going to go in there and really reveal this part of her, her identity and her life, which had been hidden for so long, which she purposely hid, you know, at the end of her life, she burned all of her correspondence so that nothing about her would be discovered. I felt like she really deserved to have someone who could understand her experience um, more write her story. And I was have never been so thankful in my life that Victoria agreed to, to join me in telling it. You know, we had had such a transformative, both of us, experience in, in writing about Belle. It sounds like you really developed... It sounds like it was perfectly timed too. It sounds like life slowed down. Yeah, right? Life slowed down and and really allowed space for you to to connect. I mean, around the book, but also just listening to the author's notes. I, I was really moved by that. And, you know, for me, readings about connection. And so the idea that you're connecting with also another author in that way. And I just thought that was beautiful. Oh, thank you. I mean, it was, it was not something we could have planned, but you're right. In many ways, the circumstances of primarily our editing, which was a deep rewriting and editing portion of the book occurred right as the the worldwide shutdown happened. And then suddenly, you know, we were on zoom like you and I are today, which is something we really hadn't used before together every day working through that and simultaneous with that things, you know, racial unrest was happening in our country. So many things were happening and every day it really felt like this historic prejudice and racism that we had were dealing with for bell was being brought forward. And um, we were dealing with it in a very modern way as well. And we really connected on personal experiences. You know, I was very honored that Victoria shared with me her, 
her own experiences with racism, sure. her own family's experiences with passing. She has people in her family who passed. So it, you know, it really, the frank conversations that we had, that we had and that we had to have on some level because of what we were writing just created a bond between us that is just extremely unique. And, um, and really, I hope we think permeated the pages of the book. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It, yes, I think the depth of that one was really visible, not only in the research, but just in the way that the two of you wrote it. It, it really... I think it captured her so well as, as I would have imagined right from my perspective. And it just opened up so many ideas about not only being a woman, like you said, but a black woman Mm -hmm. who is then denying that part of herself. I mean, just all of the, all of the intricacies and the complexities of her life really were brought forward. Really complicated. Yeah. Really nuanced. And when you said the scene of her burning the correspondence, I was just oh, like, gosh. no. Like, that's for don't. real. Like, she really yes. does that. I, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, again, we're talking about, right, like our likes and we're recording everything. Here's what I had for breakfast. And, you know, she's burning right. all of her stuff. Uh, that's Except, I, and she instructed everyone in her life to burn her stuff, their stuff too. The only person who did not do as she had asked, even though they were supposed to, is no surprise if you've read the book, Bernard Berenson. And she wrote to him probably more than anybody else. You know, right. she, she would write these like almost like journals to him. She would keep a letter going for a course of a week and then she started another one. And in many ways, they're kind of the best daily account of her life. And he did not burn them. In fact, he kept them in a trunk. Which I'm thankful for now. Like I'm partially engaged, partially yes. but yes. he did that. He kept them in his villa in Italy. And he, when he donated the villa Itati to Harvard, they got all of those things. And what's interesting actually is I was supposed to go there during the spring, early summer, right, of the pandemic. Right. I couldn't go. And those those letters aren't digitized or anything, or they weren't. They're all supposed to, um, you have to go see them personally. Okay. Fortunately, Heidi Artizoni, who wrote a wonderful biography of Belle, she did do that. And she did excerpt portions and give accounts of those letters. But what's really amazing is that the Morgan Library is having a big... Uh, centennial celebration in 2024 for the 100th anniversary of the Morgan Library going public. Okay. Which was, Bell was instrumental in making right. that. 
Yes. And so it's really going to be all about Bell. And one of the things that they're going to do or that they have, they are doing is digitizing all that correspondence. So for the first time, people will be able to peruse those long diaries and letters. And, and I really went on a tangent here. You asked me one oh. thing. And I'm like, Whoa, here we go. I'm but, all um, in. Yeah. It's, yeah, I can't wait for that to be finished. They're in the process of working on that now. So oh. yeah, anyone who's interested about her will be able to see more about her life. 2024, you said? Okay. That's exciting because that is, I think, so tremendous. I spoke to someone else about this recently, how we have such a lack of handwritten material now, everything being digital. And in some ways, of course, it's nice because we don't want everyone to see our garbage first drafts, but, (laughs) or, you know, my scratched out grocery list or whatever I'm writing. I got a lot of those. Right. But also things like that that I wonder into the future. I mean, we will have digital records, but I the handwriting of people and there's an intimacy to those materials, I'm sure, that will just be so tremendous. Yeah. And I, I like you said, I don't think I mean we probably write with greater frequency now. Yes. But letter writing was like an art and you spent a significant portion of your day writing letters to people. And they weren't just like quick one line texts or quick (laughs) LOL. (laughs) Right. There were different emojis. I mean, it was a deep look at what you were doing in your life and things that were happening. I don't think we do that kind of uh, recording anymore, even though it's more easily accessible and there's probably volumes of it, but how much of it is like a reflection of your feelings or, you know, details of the events in your life. And that's the kind of letters that Bell wrote to Bernard Berenson. Mm. Their relationship was so, I really went back and forth too. I felt like, and the way you wrote it, right? Where I was like, okay, I think I like him. Oh, no, oh, no I, I definitely don't. No. Okay. Maybe he's back in the fold, but I don't fully trust mm-hmm. him. But yeah, I had a, I had a very distrustful posture toward him pretty much the whole time. For good reason. Yeah. And turns out. Turns out justified. But (laughs) here's the thing. I do write, we do write fiction. And so there's, even though most of the book is very much anchored in the facts or, you know, an event, and then we create dialogue to wrap around it. The one scene, which is just all fiction, and we really did for ourselves, is the scene in which, if you'll recall, there's a scene on a London street without giving too much of a spoiler. Sure. In which Bernard gets his just desserts. And we, Victoria and I wrote that scene for ourselves. We were like, I am so sick of Bernard Berenson at this point. And we're tired of that. So there we go. I have full support for that. Gratifying that one was. Yeah. Yeah. How did you guys do that process of writing together? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's different because we're actually doing another book now and there's two characters. So we're each divvying up a voice, which oh, is a little bit fun. more traditional. Yes, uh, yes. You know, we didn't have a fixed process. What I would say is we talked through each and every chapter and scene. And then we would kind of divide the first go at it based on either our interest or mm. our area of expertise. You know, Victoria was not a historical fiction writer before we started writing. She was a contemporary fiction writer. And so she felt more drawn to, you know, more, more of the sort of emotional scenes. That yes. those sort of scenes. 
And I'm definitely love the historical stuff. And I've, I've written about um, manuscripts and art before. And I really, I really loved that. She liked it, but why wouldn't it? It was her first choice. Sure. But then after we did that, we would switch them and edit them and they go back and forth so that they would hopefully at the end be very seamless. So it, it wasn't super like regimented, yeah, but it was very collaborative. It sounds like it. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting look behind that because you're right. Normally you would kind of write in different voices and then mm-hmm. stitch it together. Huh. Mm-hmm. So you're writing another book with her. Very fun. Yeah. It comes out June of 2023. Yeah. That, that feels very soon. That's exciting. It feels to us too. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should mention right about that. now feels really soon. <laughs> Those yeah. are, yes. I'm sorry. The writing deadline is what? Come oh, again? Like, oh, I'm sorry. What was that? <laughs> yeah. You must not mean in four weeks. That's got to be a joke. No. <laughs> oh, would so that's funny because I had written down on my list of questions for you. Would you co-author again? And oh, yeah, the, absolutely. Could you see yourself co-authoring with anyone, or just is Victoria? Has she set a standard for you now? That's she has understood. I mean, Victoria has co-authored stuff with people before. She wrote several books with Rashonda Tate Billingsley, contemporary fiction. Yeah. But I think, you know, as she would say, and she, she would be okay with me saying this, you need a writing soulmate. Like to write with somebody else, You especially these kind of books, which really yes. do require a lot of sort of personal reflection. You need someone you can really trust. Someone yeah. who you know has the same goals as you. I mean, Victoria and I both want to do justice to these women, right? right? Honor them. And that is paramount for both of us above all else. It doesn't matter to us who wrote what. Yes. It's about coming up with the best book to really celebrate these women. And knowing that and just knowing her, I mean, we've become extremely close, as you can imagine, like yeah. sisters. I probably talk to her more than almost anybody else, not because we're writing a book. <laughs> so great. we have just a really tight, I can't imagine doing this really with anyone but her. And mm-hmm. I have I have written a short story with Kate Quinn. I don't know if you know Kate. She's a fantastic historical fiction writer, lover. I had love so much Kate fun. Quinn. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I love Kate. Yes. Very oh. much. Alice a, Network, The Huntress. Oh, such a yes. good book. Her oh. new book, and I, is awesome too. Okay. We we discovered she was writing her Bletchley oh, book, yes. oh. which is really good. And I wrote a book called The Mystery of Mrs. Christie that came out last January. Yes. And we discovered, which is about Agatha Christie's disappearance. And we discovered that she had come across Agatha in her book. And we sort of put our head, we were doing an event together. And she's like, you know what? I just found this. And isn't this crazy? And so we kind of put our heads together on this this moment in time in which her events and my character came together. And we wrote, it's like a little novella. And it was just super fun. But in terms of like a deep collaboration Victoria is my partner and we have so many books we'd like to write together. We'll, we'll see. We'll see that's, how many we can do. I don't that's know. That's so exciting. You've yeah, found your writing soulmate. Yeah. Have, really. have you made it clear to her that now you would not like her to write with anyone else? Because I feel like that would be kind we of We have so many projects to do. I, it would be very hard to find time. <laughs> You'll just keep her it too busy. Somebody else. It would be very, very challenging, I think. I support it. Keep, keep her busy. Keep her engaged. Love oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I, I, of course, for all my books, I'm focused on um, unsung women yes. of the past, right? And nowhere are the voices of women 
more suppressed than among the Black community. Yeah. So having the opportunity to dig in and tell some of those stories is really an honor because those stories, they so deserve to be told. Yes. And there's a plethora of them because uh, Black women have been, you know, have been marginalized mm-hmm. really, more than most. So. I am so happy to hear that you'll be doing that. I'm thinking back to, and it was a number of years ago, but I feel like the an early book that really stood out to me was The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. But that felt like, you know, it stands out to me, but it really shouldn't stand out because there are so many of those stories just like that one. So only recently are they have they really come yes. to surface very yes. just very recently. And so now I'm starting to see more stories of women of color and it's so beautiful to see. Mm. So to be able to be part of that has really been an honor for me. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you two will be telling those stories because you did a tremendous job with the personal librarian. It was readable. It was, it was all the things that I expect from a Marie Benedict book, but also had that element of another, just another side to it Mm -hmm. that I think was, it sounds like really brought to light a little bit more by Victoria. So that's what a great collaboration. I love it. Okay. So I have a question for you. Have you seen the movie Midnight in Paris with Owen Wilson and Rachel McAdams? I think there might've been another one. Maybe that was the remake. Okay. So the premise is I love Paris. So I'll watch it anytime because they have a ton of shots of the city and the music's really fun. So the premise is basically that one of the characters believe he's believes he's living in the wrong age, right? He mm-hmm. he really thinks that the age to live in was when, who's he talking to? Ernest Hemingway was alive and they were mm-hmm. all together in Paris. So, but he comes upon a woman, but she believes that Belle Epoque was the right age. So it's sort of this idea that oh, we're all- this, like, set up. That's you'll really have cool. to You'll have to watch, watch it. Yeah. And it's not too long. It's kind of a perfect, you know, since we all have the attention span of a goldfish these days. Oh, yeah. So. I mean, like this hasn't changed my attention <laughs> right. span. Yeah, no, of course not. So if, so the question is for you, you've yeah. studied a lot of ages yeah. and you're a history buff. If you could live in any age besides this one, which one would you choose? That's such a hard question because I love like every historical <laughs> It's like, I'm curious about what it's like to live in every age. And since I was a kid, I always wanted to be a time traveler, you know, oh, like yes. all those books were my jam as yes. well as free. And I guess, you know, I spend a lot of time in like the past sort of 150 years in my research. Okay. If I could pick a time period ish, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Okay. Um, that's fine. I, I would go way back just to see, I wouldn't want to live there for like ever because like plumbing is a big problem, but yeah. and, like, antibiotics, antibiotics, <laughs> but I would love to glimpse ancient Egypt. I just love that time period. I think it's so cool. And uh, my family is primarily Irish and I've written a little bit about this time period, but I love the time, the um, ancient Celts. I think that's mm. a super fascinating time period. Now I say that, but I'm pretty sure the reality of living in those time periods was terrible. You know, you got a tiny infection from a hangnail and that was, you were dead. I mean, you know, it's like things got to get bad pretty fast, but they I would really like, can. Ike, I would love just to get the visual. That would be okay. So you want to be a visitor. You know, I don't know. I'm with you as well on the 
modern conveniences in medicine, showers, things like that. Yeah. But I think I would probably choose, well, and here's the other piece of this. And we've talked about this just briefly where it's like, I kind of think the twenties, right? The roaring twenties, just the sort of vast irresponsibility of it all I would enjoy. So I could see enjoying that, but it's almost like you could never go back because you would see all of these things. Like as a woman, I wouldn't be able to live any sort of life that I would want to. So it's sort of a strange question because you, you couldn't, you couldn't go back with your current knowledge and, and that idea. I don't know. It's sort of a, a mind bent, but yeah, I'd like to think I would have looked good in a flapper dress. Yeah. Right. That, that, that's probably a good reason to choose a time period. Totally. For yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. When we're talking about time periods, definitely fashion is the most important. Ooh. Not, yeah. Not like any yes. flushable toilets. Antibiotics. <laughs> 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 Who cares about that? It's fine. Yeah. Actually. And if I were doing that, I would definitely have to be less of a hypochondriac and Oh, you know, yes. You'd yeah, have to it would be. Yeah. yeah. So basically, right. I have to go back in time, but also be a different person. <laughs> yeah. You'd have to have lower expectations <laughs> yes. and definitely not get any hangnails because that's oh. a downward spiral. So. It is. Yes. That is me infection. on the Oregon Trail dying from a broken leg, right? It's the uh, same, exactly. same thing. It's same crazy. reason I never won. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Okay. So we've reached the almost conclusion of our interview. Do you have a question for me? I know. I think I could chat with you all day. Well, I would be curious to yes. know as a librarian and sure. avid reader, what book about libraries is your favorite? Oh, because I've written two books about libraries. So yes. obviously I love libraries. Like yes. they're damn. Oh. What book about, and you don't have, put mine and, and my books aside. But not even, <laughs> Which books do you like? They better be one of mine. No, Choice A or B. Okay. Right. No Let's see. What have I loved? Books about libraries. It's, okay. So I just finished, I have a couple. The first oh, is one. Yeah. So I have a middle grade because I'm reading a lot of middle grades. So a lot of those are set in libraries, but there's mm-hmm. a book called The Library of Ever. That is so good. And I actually got to talk to the author and he was fantastic. So the Library of Ever, there are two books. There's Library of Ever and then The Rebel in the Library of Ever. And the character is Lenora, starts out in New York. It's just a great, I really enjoyed that one. And then, of course, I loved The Midnight Library, which many people have read. I haven't read that, but I think I need to. Oh, yes, you do. Is it really, really really good? I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved The Midnight Library. I think you might enjoy Beyond the Starless Sea. Ooh. If you haven't read that one, it's Aaron mm. Morgenstern. Yeah, I've seen it before. I've yes. often yeah, I thought I should get this. Yes, that one. And see, I could go on all day. The and that's what the I want. last yes, the last chance library. That's a very good one as well. Okay. And then I have heard, now I haven't read it yet, mostly because I haven't had the time, but Cloud Cuckoo Land. Oh, that's really good. Okay. I like and I heard that there's a library-ish element to that. There okay. is a library-ish. Okay. Um, it's a futuristic, kind of oh. very hard to describe, but very cool library in there. Okay. It's a little bit of a mind bender, that book, but 
I, I would definitely, what I tell people about it, it's long and okay. there's many threads and it takes yes. a long, long time for them to all come together. And it's, it's out there, but that's my favorite kind of book. And yes. it's hard for me to find books like that. And I would definitely have to say, if you're like at the beginning thinking, I'm not sure, I don't have a huge amount of time to read okay. with it. Just keep going. So it's kind of how I felt about Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, which is one of my favorite books. I love that book. People either love it or hate it. And at first I picked it up and I was like, no, this is not happening. Yeah. And then a little bit later, I went, for some reason, I went back to it and I stuck with it and it was like transformative, that book. Wow. Have you read that book? I have not. It's been on my list, but I am with you on the, I had a hesitation on the premise where I thought, mm, I'm not sure about this. Okay. No. I'll read so that good. one and okay. we can discuss. And then I think you should start with Beyond the Starless Sea. Okay. Because I, I'm, I'm literally going to buy that today. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I love it. Well, thank you for asking. I love, I love recommending books. It's just, I mean, shocking, right? Like, could it be more um, obvious? Yeah. <laughs> Kind of of my thing. (laughs) Well, and I just love people that take my bossy advice too, because when I was in kindergarten, the kindergarten teacher told my mom, Julie needs to worry about Julie, but I just found myself a job where I can worry about everybody else. And you know what? Tell that kindergarten teacher to to stick it. (laughs) Julie's going to worry about all this. Yeah. Julie's going to manage all this. She'll take care of that. <laughs> I you guess just worry about you, kindergarten. <laughs> well, Marie, this has been so fun. Thank so you fun. so much. You are fabulous, Julie. Aww. I'm so excited you're doing this podcast and writing your own book. Thank you. And gosh, obviously you're in the right profession. As if you didn't know that. I feel very fortunate to be in the in the pocket of so much of my joy. Like I'm really lucky. So I'm thankful. And I can't wait to read your book when it comes out. Oh, I'm so excited. Well, thanks for today. And I will be checking in with you soon and obviously checking on your reading progress and seeing what's happening. No problem. I'll expect a quiz. (laughs) Perfect. Thanks so much. So fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at juliewritesWords, or you can go to my website, juliewritesWords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. 